Hello, Henrietta. Hi, Jason. Welcome to the conversations with Jason Campbell and Henrietta Galena. Um, Henrietta, we have a we have a couple of guests this week on on the podcast. Why don't you introduce them? Um, okay, um, so we're <laughs> going to be talking about. I mean, we've spoken about influencer culture for a few episodes now, and had a few guests. And actually, we're going to be talking about a council that's actually just launched last week. So I'm really excited to introduce Kiana Smith and Chrissy Rutherford to the podcast. Hi, guys. Hello. Hello, guys. Thanks for Um, having us. So excited to be here. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. We're really excited to dive into our conversation and to hear everything that you guys have to say. And there's a lot that is actually quite interesting and super relevant, especially for the time we're in now. But why don't we kick off like we always do with our guests and just have you both talk a little bit about yourselves, what you do, just to give us a bit of context as we frame the conversation. So why don't we start with you, Kiana, and then we'll go to you, Chrissy. Awesome. My name is Kiana Smith-Brunetto, and I am the founder of the American Influencer Council. We launched last week on Global Social Media Day, and we are the sole trade association representing creators created by and for influencers. And we have a very exciting model in terms of being the first to really try to offer an organization where business, you know, entrepreneurs can connect and have that B2B exchange and and really, you know, get the credit and you know, legitimization that creators don't necessarily get labeled. And prior to the AIC, I, you know, in different capacities, started the social media department at Saks Fifth Avenue and started the social media department for the U.S. Open and have done some extraordinary influencer campaigns. I won the Shorty Award for Best Celebrity Influencer Campaign on Snapchat. And I've got to work with Chrissy, who <laughs> joins me on this show and worked with so many incredible influencers and celebrities along the way that it's a, it's an exciting time. It's uh, with all the different alliances forming this year. I mean, everyone is collaborating and realizing that you're stronger together. Yes, absolutely. And that's a super impressive resume, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) And let's hear about you, Chrissy. So, um, I mean, my life has changed so much in the last couple of months, but I basically spent the last 12 years working in fashion Um, As an editor, I worked at harpersbazaar.com for the last eight and a half years. So that was my most, you know, significant job. And I started off as, I guess, like an editorial assistant and then worked my way up and through the ranks. And by the time that I left, I was the special projects director working across talent and social. I ran the brand's Instagram account. Uh, We were ranked like top 10 magazines to follow on Instagram. I was nominated for an ASNI award in 2019 for social media, sadly lost, but (laughs) such an honor to even be considered. And um, yeah, I did a lot of talent bookings. I found a lot of interesting people to write and share their stories with Bizarre. So, you know, it was an amazing, amazing opportunity. And, you know, while I was there, I was also very much participating in Instagram and, you know, building my own following and getting a lot of exciting opportunities to partner with brands, um, whether that was with you know, inside Hearst or outside. And, um, you know, it's really incredible all the opportunities that kind of come to you because of this app. And I can wholeheartedly say if it weren't for Instagram and this, you know, platform I built for myself, I would not have had the courage to leave my full-time job in February. Well, wow. 
Well, <laughs> we're clearly, well, we're clearly speaking to two um, professionals who are steeped in, in the world of influencer culture. And for Henriette and I, we certainly have been talking about this. Oftentimes, I have to confess, skirting the influencer conversation in some respects, because we've always wanted to sort of just give room for it to flourish. I, says, I think sometimes, you know, a very critical eye is placed on influencer culture. And we've been actively trying to just see how that space unfolds and really giving it the benefit of the doubt. But one of the reasons that I wanted to have this conversation, guys, is that I think that the whole influencer space is just one big gray area. I know a lot of influencers. I actually at one time had a half a million followers um, on my on my on my page as well. We'll have to talk about that uh, later wow. on in the conversation wow. of, how I was, of how I was chopped by Instagram. So, um, Kiana, I definitely want to get into into that conversation with you about, you know, protection and policy and all of that. But guys, one of the things that really I, I just fail to understand about the influencer culture is just how what a cowboy culture it is. There are no <laughs> real clear rules. You know, you don't really, really know who is winning. You hear about, you know, this one with a couple million um, followers making less money than someone who has, you know, 100,000 followers. It just seems like a space, an unregulated space. It seems like a, a, of a space that is just kind of, um, it's just chaotic, for lack of a better word. It seems chaotic. So I'm hoping <laughs> that you guys can put some frame, can put some context to that space, help us understand it in a way that you, that you attempt, and in your case, Kiana, sort of attempt to shepherd the influencers in this space. Like, I'm interested to see how this all is going to play out. But most importantly, though, Chrissy, if you yeah. paint the picture for me as how influencers have existed in this social media space, what the disruption looks like during this COVID time, and what you anticipate to happen post this period. Sorry, it was such a big, maybe that's a big ask, but if you can encapsulate that for me. No, you know, I think that, well, you know, I have a unique perspective, of course, because I was an editor before and there were, um, you know, a lot of sort of restrictions placed around me and what I was actually able to do with my platform while I was working at Bazaar. And we can get into that later, of course. But, um, you know, I think, before COVID, obviously there was a thriving influencer market. Like there is a reason why brands pay influencers, you know, lots of money to promote clothes, to promote products, to promote events, like because it works. And, you know, it was very interesting to see once COVID and lockdown hit and, you know, the future was looking very ominous, how many articles there were about, oh, you know, influencing influencer marketing is over and this is, is COVID the end of influencers and all of this. Like we all saw those stories and I just think it's become very clear that that's not the case. And I don't think that will ever be the case. Like, of course people's budget. I will, I think in the beginning, obviously a lot of the brands were like, well, we need to put the brakes on this because we don't know what's happening. But then after a couple of weeks, they realized, okay, we have to pivot this is still a huge opportunity because people are at home. Uh, we can't do photo shoots. We can't book models. So who else is going to create content for us but influencers? And, you know, so we've obviously seen this model still continue to work and it will continue to work for, you know, for the foreseeable future. So, you know, I, I just always think it's funny. I think a lot of people, you know, outside of this industry are always sort of like waiting for, you know, the demise of influencers. So but funny. I just, I just, <laughs> you know, and I think the word influencer like inherently just brings up like feelings of insecurity for others because <laughs> people literally make money off of, you know, their looks. But obviously there is a whole spectrum of what the influencer world looks like. And perhaps what I'm doing is a lot different than what some of the top girls are doing. And we all have carved out our own little niche for ourselves. Um, and that's why it's so hard to sort of like measure, yeah. you know, measure up everyone because everyone is sort of bringing something different to the table. Um, um, that's that, really what it comes down to. And that's so interesting that you bring up this dystopian view, particularly in press, because I mean, 
every week there's an article about why this is the end of influencer culture. And actually, that seems to be the only thing buoying up marketing at the moment because it, <laughs> it's such a strong game. And it's actually the most tactical, but also it's the most uh, feasible right now with the pandemic. Right. So I actually think that those mapped against each other, it's been really interesting seeing that. And I think you're definitely right that there is this lens of either insecurity or just waiting for it all to come crashing down, which... I think obviously with what you guys are trying to achieve with the council, I think is trying to reconcile and strengthen. Yeah, because well, it's a very real business. That's what I'm like, do people not understand this? This is a real way that people make money. And sure, we've seen, you know, in the past with like Fire Festival and things like that, where sure, maybe people were taking money just to promote things that they had no real understanding of. And I get that that can be a part of it. But then, you know, I think people need to obviously be mindful of who they're giving power to, who they're giving their follows to, because that equals power. And you want to be promoting influencers that you know, like, have good values and are doing good things. And, you know, you act like are really inspirational because there are so many different kinds of influencers. Absolutely. It's irrefutable that the currency of influencer culture in fashion is dominant right now. I mean, anyone who spends any bit of time on, on Instagram can determine that. So that it's, it has arrived, it's here, but I'm interested. And from you, Kiana, I'm interested in the policy making surrounding this culture. And I, I from from my understanding of the um, American Influencer Council, that's in fact how you are set up and that's why you're set up. You're, you're, are you set up for the protection of this influencer culture? And how and if so, how do you plan to go about doing that? Well, I think when you think about this industry, first and foremost, it's a startup industry. It's been around for roughly 16 years. And most of us who have been working in social media marketing, influencer marketing, are a byproduct of a test and learn culture. You know, if you think about most influencers have built their businesses by trial and error. And so a lot of these entrepreneurs, you know, many of them are some of our founding members like Danielle Bernstein, who's Forbes, what is it? 30 under 30. 30, um, New York Times bestselling author, CEO of her own technology company, Mo Assist, and she's 28 years old. And so I think that you have a group of very savvy individuals. Our chairwoman, Chriselle Lim, she's running to start up herself. But you have this white space as well, where you have individuals who built careers on their know-how. Or, you know, someone like myself, the defining roles of my career were created for me. And so this is a space where universities are just starting across the country to have digital marketing degrees. And so from a policy perspective, one, we're starting first and foremost with a mission pillar of learning and education because, one, we want Generation Alpha not to have to trial and error through this profession like maybe Christy and I did, you know? Um, we want people who to aspire to know that you can make a living, you know, being a creator, being a social media director, being an influencer agent, you know, being a, you know, being a chief content officer. These are all very new titles in the last five years, right? Mm -hmm. And then if you get to the logistics of it, you know, the Federal Trade Commission is the governing body for sponsored content. How do creators get paid? It's regulated by the Federal Trade Commission endorsement guides. The guides, they were written 
10 years ago. They're up for review, but the guides don't even include TikTok. TikTok's the hottest app right now. But <laughs> love TikTok. Uh, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> but you know, for many creators, the guides, which is what governs us, if I run an ad right now as a creator on TikTok and I don't put disclosure copy in my ad in my video and I share that on Instagram, you are you know, you're legally liable for uh for that disclosure and so you just you just made an ftc fail people don't know that and so it's our job as you know the stewards of this industry to inform and drive awareness because the ftc is not doing that at scale so i think they're in it's funny because you kind of really touched on it because they're in for, for me and my vantage point lies a big issue as it pertains to the great area of this space because, you know, you, you mentioned TikTok. We weren't talking about TikTok last year. No. I, I actually don't even know how old TikTok is, but it definitely wasn't in the brand arsenal not 12 months ago and a couple of years ago Snapchat was hot and now no one's on Snapchat. And a lot well, of the teens are still on, the teens are still on Snapchat. <laughs> People are messaging, direct messaging each other on Snapchat. Snapchat's still very relevant, but people use it in a very intimate way. I think the point is largely that the functions change. So from a brand standpoint, the ranking of it all changes. You know, there was that one Kylie Jenner tweet and all of a sudden brands were not allocating their resources on that platform, they reallocated it to an Instagram first and foremost, and then a, a TikTok when that came up. So I guess my point is more so as it pertains to the gray area is that everything is changing in real time at lightning speed. And so yeah. it becomes difficult to govern these changes. And I think that's really a big part of the gray area because it's a bit like the wild, wild west, right? And then the influence market is becoming saturated and how is that being policed or is it not it's the internet which is highly democratic there are all of these elements that make it hard to create policies that move as quickly as the space but also it's super crowded that like to chrissy's point everyone's carving out their niche so you could be a career influencer but you could also be a content creator but you could be a photographer but you could be an entrepreneur and so i think that this gray area is essentially fueled by the nature of the landscape so in terms of trying to get your arms around the influencer council and, and what that is really aimed to do, it's just such a big job. Can you talk us through, I guess, how you're going to be changing in real time alongside the industry and how you plan on disseminating information and kind of shepherding this kind of change in this governance? For sure. So the Federal Trade Commission put a notice for a public comment in terms of getting consumers and brands to be part of their regulatory review process. And so we were one one of our first acts as a trade association. This was one of our first lobbying acts was to put out what we think are what is the way forward from a creator's perspective. And so you nailed it. You know, this space moves at lightning speed. And so reviewing the endorsement guides every 10 years doesn't do us And so, you know, one of our recommendations was that we should have a three-year review process that would at least match some of the other regulatory bodies in other industries. We also suggested a dialogue forum with the big six platforms, because if you if I'm a creator or just coming from the brand side, I never ran a paid campaign that was on just one platform. Mm -hmm. I've always leveraged paid media on multiple channels because you're targeting different audience segments. I'm going to activate Instagram. I'm going to turn on YouTube. I'm going to turn on Snapchat and perhaps maybe I'm going to do an interesting carousel on Twitter, some kind of user engagement, or maybe I'm going to have a real customized partnership with a platform like I did with Snapchat and um, my spectacles campaign. 
So I think most brands are activating in this way. Mm -hmm. And so when you have platforms having very different sponsored content interfaces and how it's displayed to a consumer, one, just as a consumer, it's super tricky. If I follow, I follow so many influencers. If I follow, you know, our board vice president, Brittany Xavier on TikTok, and she posts a sponsored content on TikTok, and then she does the same thing on Instagram, it looks very different. Mm -hmm. And so one, it's like, one, we want to help the consumer because consumer transparency is paramount to any entrepreneur. And it's also paramount to the creator because building that, you know, establishes trust and it helps you sustain your audience's trust as well. So there are so many things that we advocated towards the FTC. The creator shouldn't take on all of that responsibility when the platforms have the infrastructure that a single creator doesn't. Okay. Right? And actually, Kiana, this is a this is a segue into speaking about those platforms. And I will speak about now my experience having lost on uh, nearly half a million followers. That is uh, Oh, are you part of the celebrity purge? Um <laughs> I, I, <laughs> again, again, it's like Jason's talking about his experience, you're talking about celebrity purge, and I'm like, say what? Like we're living, right. I'm like, well, well, that's, that's the whole Kim Kardashian and Bieber and everyone lost. No, I don't think so, Kiana. I, I don't think so. And that's part of um and that's part of the problem. You know, you see, I as I said, I had a, a half a million followers and just overnight essentially it was it was wiped, apparently for copyright violation and, and so forth. I have to tell you influencers and Chrissy, I would love your weigh in on this as well. I find it to be alarming and dangerous that as influencers, uh, you build your 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 life, your livelihood on these platforms that I've always said there's no central nervous system at Instagram, for example, which let's still call it the dominant uh, social media platform. I don't know that to be the case at TikTok. So you end up having this platform that you're playing willy nilly with, but you're playing, you could be playing willy nilly with your, with your, your, with your livelihood and the rules that they have established. These rules are not transparent. They exist somewhere in the, in the virtual space, but I have had, I have so many examples of a punitive action taken against influencers and people who use these platforms and subsequently has like resulted in such fear amongst that culture. They're almost um, operating um, trepidatiously every single day, every single post, every single mention, because they ultimately don't, don't know the rules of the game, but they do know that a big brother is there. They do know that there's some kind of governing body is there that will like literally level the guillotine when they see fit because of some community standards and all of that. So that, that was a very long-winded way of talking about the influencer's protection how do you if you're not communicating with the with these platforms the tiktoks the instagram the facebooks and all of the social media platforms that influencers use to you know for their profile and to broadcast if they are not a part of this dialogue and a part of this structure if you will uh kiana surrounding the the american influencer council can you really steward and shepherd their interest, their best interest forward when there is no sort of like when the when these platforms are not beholden to any sort of practices or to any sort of like transparent policies. Well, that's why I'm hoping, you know, through my career and the relationships that I've built at the platform level, I've had extraordinary relationships with Snapchat and Pinterest and Twitter and Instagram. And I've been able to do some tremendous campaigns with these platforms. And so throughout my career, I'm hoping that the relationships that I've built with the executives at these platforms will allow us to at least have the first, this is like the first bridge, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and you also have Eliza Lick, who is one of our board vice presidents, who was at Donna Karen for 17 years and also has done some incredible work with the various platforms, too. And so you have between the board 
and our founding members, each of us having different relationships in the space that, you know, we'll, we have to leverage in order to get our agenda moved forward. And, and, and Kiana, we already I, have incredible interest from the platforms because it's in everyone's best interest to work together. Well, I, you say that, but I don't necessarily agree with that, actually, uh, Kiana. Because historically, these platforms have shown they've actually approached their strategy in a very sort of Silicon Valley, very tech, very spectrum-y kind of way, where they put out these, you know, they put out this technology and they expect actually the, the users, the influencers out there to duke it out and to figure it out and to use popularity <laughs> to get action. And I found it to be the strangest thing. In many ways, they have just like rolled out these platforms and be like, OK, have some fun over there. If someone says that you've done something wrong, we're going to there'll be punitive action. But yes, go ahead and go back and have some fun over there. There is well, no I think you have some platforms who have gone out of their way to be creator first mm -hmm. and okay. you have some platforms who have definitely you know have not established what i call fair market fair business practices can we name these or, platforms kiana can we name them like which ones do you think are doing it well and which, which ones are not well, I will be drive. We will be driving awareness because this is all very public information. I think you know Instagram turns ten in October. Only last month did they announce a creator revenue share okay. program. Okay. And YouTube has been rev sharing with creators for over thirteen years. It, okay. So I think there, you know, there are facts in the marketplace mm -hmm. that speak to Twitch. Twitch has an incredible rev share program with their creators. And so when you talk about market share and business growth, mm -hmm. I think that when you look and examine what the platforms are doing and the opportunities, it, it it's clear. But you also want to give the platforms a chance to evolve. And that's where we want to have these difficult conversations because the numbers speak the truth. This year, you know, despite COVID conditions, you know, Instagram influencer marketing globally will reach a $5 billion spend. You know, how is that scaling with the way creators are also monetizing themselves? You know, we have to be able to look at those numbers and understand how businesses are accelerating from both sides. And so that's why the AIC is here, because we want to be sure that the industry is driving and it's accelerating and both creators, brands and platforms are growing at an equal rate. And now, Chrissy, in terms of the mm -hmm. in terms of the conditions that you experienced prior to say, and I understand, Kiana, that the forming of the American Influencer Council is is relatively new. But in terms of the platform that you've established and the changes that you um, or the policies that you uh, expect to implement, Chrissy, based on what you have experienced and, and where you want to go, how do you envision these policies aiding you in getting there? You know, I think that, well, you know, it's interesting because I understand like the conversation around, you know, it sort of feels like, you know, we're given this platform and we just kind of have to like figure it out as we go. And there's kind of these changes that happen behind the scene that we're not super privy to. But again, we just have to like figure it out. It's almost like taxes where they're like, you have to figure out. You have to figure out how much you owe. We're not going to tell you, but we'll tell you what if you get in trouble and you exactly. don't pay the right amount. I also wanted to interject, and I, I'm so sorry, Chrissy. I'll, I'll let you circle no, back to your point. I think no, it's, no. it's definitely worth mentioning something that we often overlook when we talk about this in the fashion circles, or should I say fashion and lifestyle circles, which is, for the most part, fashion is such a tiny piece of these platforms' businesses. I think when you look at even the Facebook group, I think a lot of this sort of gray area, smokes and mirrors, lack of transparency 
is caught up in a large, a much larger wave. We see what's happening politically. We see what's happening culturally oh, with the right. whole issue around data protection and external international forces interjecting the American election and propaganda and fake news and hate speech. Mm-hmm. And I think there is a lot that works around that from a, a much larger policy level, a much larger political level that has absolutely nothing to do with fashion and lifestyle influences, creators and our sort of sphere. But we get caught up in all of those things because of the larger platform and that larger landscape. You know, we're almost a landscape within a larger landscape. So I think that it's worth mentioning that when we talk about a lack of transparency and how rules aren't consistent, I think we're almost collateral damage in that respect because it's, it's a real sort of big brother thing that is way bigger than fashion and lifestyle. So I just thought it was worth noting. Yeah. I totally see that. Yeah, so it, it does sort of feel like, you know, we're kind of left in the dark and having to figure out how this stuff all works on its own. And even when I was at Bazaar, you know, Instagram holds all these workshops where you go and you learn best practices. And I went to every single one. They probably held them like two to three times a year. But at the end of the day, it, it's so hard because it feels like the formula to win, whatever that looks like, is so different for each and every one. You know, that's on the platform. So, and it's so specific to like who follows you, what they want to see, who the people that follow you, who else they're also following, you know? So (laughs) it, it really feels like it is hard to win. And I think let's also throw in the fact that like, I'm a black woman who is an influencer and how that also plays into these platforms where, you know, white supremacy basically has control over every aspect of our lives and all the systems that are in place. And we also see it on social media platforms. White people are more likely to follow other white influencers and think that they can relate to them more. And it's been so interesting even to see what's happened these last, you know, like six, seven weeks um, with this uprising because my Instagram following has literally doubled you know, like you don't see those kind of gains in one year, let alone a one month. So, you know, unless you're like, I, I don't, I don't even know what one would have to do, you know, and I don't necessarily, I'm not someone who's ever aspired to have like a million followers. I would just, you know, like to have enough of a platform that like, yeah, I could make a living doing what I enjoy doing. And So, yeah, I think it's just really it's been so interesting to see how now that there is this push to diversify your social media feeds, how that has really helped so many black creators because we were really like victims of the system. And I think that you actually you've really touched on something that's really important and interesting that I personally am very interested in, which is you know, there has been a racial uprising in fashion and we've all seen the campaigns. We're going to support Black creators and promote Black creators. I think most brands and platforms have really used this opportunity to say these are the Black creators and influencers you should be following. So I think that has built this ideal of aspiration. Like, oh, okay, I'm going to go from nano to micro. I'm going to go from micro to world stage influencer. And so we're going to see this influx of black creators right in the influencer space and to your point about the system working against us i'm interested kiana to know what are the systems in place to protect this influx of black creators because we know that there are so many rules and policies mapped against lack of transparency but also just the basic brass tacks of like how do you get paid a lot of brands are going to say well it's for the awareness we're giving you a platform how do they know what their rights are to say, no, actually, I need to be paid. Right. This is a career path for me. And, you know, there's so right. much gray area to go back to that original point. But how are this new influx of black creators to be protected when even careered influencers are still trying to navigate the space sort of 10, 15 years in? Mm-hmm. I think that some issues, even the new up and coming black creators, that you gave an example of being paid or not being paid. I think these are issues, especially with COVID. I've talked to a lot of creators who 
came to me and said, and I'm getting a ton of requests from brands to do work for trade. And these are creators of all colors. Um, and these are cre mega creators. And so I think that, you know, some issues and Nicolette Mason, who is our LGBTQ and plus size advocate, she definitely has a point of view too through her career. She has had to deal with being contracted and paid different wages based on size. And, you know, and so I think there are pockets of issues too that have to be addressed within creators of color. So you have brands. And I think the community of creators. They absolutely are sharing this information, mm -hmm. but there's never been an intel source to gather it and to mobilize that information and knowledge and to take that information and knowledge and actually have a platform to initiate any type of change. And so 100% coming from the brand side, I contracted the Quan sisters for the first social media campaign at Saks Fifth Avenue that was ever anchored by two Black creators. After that, there has never been a social media campaign since wow. anchored by Black creators. Are you and serious? So, I, I'm serious. And I think Kathleen Ruiz, who was my manager at the time, she was 100% for it. When she and I left, that stopped. And so I think it also comes down to leadership. Mm -hmm. I was very oh. lucky to have mm -hmm. a manager who supported me 100%, who hired me, <laughs> right? And gave me, she created the role for me and gave me my opportunity and allowed me to do very disruptive campaigns. But then after we left, it stopped. And so I also think that it comes down to it's a leadership within the brands. It comes down to it being something culturally within each company that it's it's never a one-off, right? And so it's a larger conversation that I think a lot of companies are having in terms of cultural change. And thank God that Black Black Lives Matters has fueled a lot of this because YouTube put in, I think was about a hundred million dollars in helping advance creators of color. And so you have had platforms devote funds and resources to making change, but you also still need to put these issues in a public forum so that the public and consumers are aware because and, sure. Sure. and to Chrissy, to Chrissy's point about, you know, you're sort of over there, everyone's sort of over there figuring it out on their own. I mean, there's a certain benefit. You know, there's a certain benefit to the vertical, you know, to the powers that be that there is not, you know, total transparency, that there's not all this information is not out there. Is, is that a part of it? Uh, Kiana, is that yes, I do know that uh, change does take time. It's not that we're expecting things overnight. But would you say that it's in the interest of some of these companies to keep things as they are? The more transparency, the more accountability. And who wants that? <laughs> <laughs> I do believe that you win accountability, though, fosters credibility. And consumers respect that. And you do see consumers supporting that, especially now more than ever. And I think, you know, you have brands like P&G who stepped up right in the beginning of, of COVID and they put, you know, funds and resources behind the distance dance on TikTok and driving awareness around, you know, that Gen Z and how important it was to wear a mask and to stay home. And, you know, they, they ran that through their foundation. And I think you do have, you know, 
brands who social advocacy and inclusion are part of their brand DNA. And I think that they're going to put pressure on other brands because you saw brands who posted about Black Lives Matter who weren't authentic and were called out for it. And now, Chrissy, do you feel... Do you feel empowered? Do you feel going into this next chapter of influencer culture as a black influencer, one of the few, a prominent one at that, <laughs> do you feel um, greater empowerment in how you approach it? Surely with, the, with a council like this that's forming that, you know, the, the, it, it's, it's there to help in that foundation. Um, but as, a, as an individual, as a professional, do you feel a certain sense of empowerment um, that you'll have different conversations going forward? <laughs> Absolutely. To a certain extent, like I think that, you know, maybe me being outspoken about, you know, what's going on might feel new to some people. But, you know, while I was working at Bazaar, of course, like I was working for a major magazine. I can't be like starting drama with brands and stuff like that on the internet. But there were many times where I sent emails to brands PR saying that, there was no diversity on their Instagrams or in their lookbooks or at an event and it's not acceptable. And to be quite frank, if a lot of those people had listened to me, they probably wouldn't have found themselves in the position that they were in a couple of weeks ago. I think but, literally, okay. literally every black person working in the industry is saying that right now. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I've heard that uh, so many times. Definitely believe that. Exactly. Um, but I do feel more, I think, empowered to, you know, command the rates that I want for partnerships. And, you know, I think that because of my background as an editor, I've always been pretty solid in where I stand on my worth. You know, like I don't create content for free for brands unless it's like a brand I have a relationship with or one that I just, you know, really believe in. But there's Obviously, it's very rampant for these random brands to come to you and be like, oh, we'll send you something for free in exchange for a post. And, you know, I because of my years as an editor, I get I'm gifted so much. And I'm like, I can't set that precedent of, oh, I'm just going to create content for everyone for free. I would never make any money. <laughs> so, you know, I do think that now because of everything that is happening, like, yeah, I do feel more empowered that like, okay, people, you know, want to hear from me, want to know where I stand on this stuff and that my, my values matter. And I think across the board, like for those who follow influencers, I think they should really be taking into account, you know, where these people stand on important issues, because I think we've seen influencers who have sort of taken the position of like, oh, well, I don't, you know, speak about this stuff on my platform and whatnot. But, you know, these are just straight like human rights conversations that we're having. And if you can't have that, then it's it's just hard for me to to really understand what it's hard for me to understand the value, you know, and I think that that is what people are really looking for now. And I think that's one thing that everyone that is a part of the AIC right now are incredible creators who like stand for something and have great values. And I, and I really hope that we can also be an example to other creators and other influencers that like, this is the right thing to do. This is the right way to continue to build your brand. Like, yes, of course you can, be an amazing chef or you can be an incredible style influencer, but people also want to know that you care about other humans. Well, and would you say that that's definitively, I know things were moving towards this direction. Like we, we had actually done an episode about brand standing for something. And that was only for brands. That was also for individuals, whether you're an influencer or an editor or whatever, whatever your title is, things were moving in that direction. But do you feel that this period has definitively accelerated uh, the demand for influencers to absolutely stand for something or step out of the absolutely. way? Absolutely. I think this is probably an opportunity to talk about more of the tactical elements of the AIC, because I think what's really great is that it exists, because as we've just explained, honestly, we could have seven, seven hour conversations and still not, <laughs> and still not scratch the same. I know. <laughs> Um, but I think one of the things that I'm really interested in also is 
the trajectory of the AIC and how it's set up. Because I think one of the things that I found interesting is the fact that the internet is the home for influencers, right? And creators. It's really hard to align or govern like the digital space. Because even when we talk about brands, we all know brands that just have policies or CEOs that don't believe in paying influencers because they don't see the value or repurposing content or, you know, sharing on different platforms and different strategies. It's very convoluted. So could you talk, Kiana, more about your strategy behind a membership model and mirroring a bit of a CFDA setup? Because it seems like there is a space for almost like open source, maybe. I don't know how that would be governed, but it seems like there needs to be something that feels a bit more democratic that allows a bunch of people to be able to opt in because so many people need help navigating the space. Could you speak more about the way that you're set up and how you guys plan to grow and what your trajectory is over the next, let's say, 12 to 24 months? Yeah, so we have three types of members. We have career influencer members and organizations and professional advisors. And so we set it up this way so that um, organizations and professional advisors can caucus with our career influencers. So career influencers are the only members that have voting privileges and have the ability to run for our board of directors. And that was important because we wanted to ensure that creators truly at the AIC have a seat at the table and that in terms of having an interconnected structure, we wanted to have the ability to have a fluid cyclical type of network where you have the brands and organizations who partner with the creators But then you also have university professors, social media directors, influencer directors, chief marketing officers, innovation officers, influencer agents, talent managers, etc. Who are also part of the system and network that move the industry. And so it's very important. And then, of course, people at the platform level as well. And then if you go... Even deeper into the data, you know, the sprinklers, the hoot suites, mm-hmm. the um, hyper brands, and et cetera. Uh-huh. So the analytics. But, but, but I, because, Kiana, I have, mm-hmm. Kiana, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to inter. Um, I'm sorry to interrupt. But one thing I don't fully understand is surrounding the membership. Why is this not for? all influencers who are tiled that way. You have a, essentially a board of directors and a, a sort of an elite membership list. I'm, I'm, a little, I'm a little confused about that approach. Could you explain that a little bit further for us? The approach, we wanted to be in terms of really curating the right group of people because we have a not-for-profit model and not-for-profit is volunteer service. And so as a startup trade association, there's a lot of time and commitment in terms of developing the foundation of the association. And so it's imperative that the initial stages of what we're trying to do, we have people very committed and have the time it's required to do the work. Right. <laughs> oh, that's really to interesting. Build, to, build, to build this up. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I think, Point. of course, you know, when you have a first-to-market concept, mm-hmm. a lot of people want to be involved and no one wants to do the hard work. Yes. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> that is so true. Yes. And so we, we, we created this invite-only model because, it's, of course, we have to vet who's involved and ensure that they are committed because we need people. We need change agents. Mm-hmm. And people who are going to put ideas to paper because writing almost a 20 page comment to the Federal Trade Commission was a lot of work. (laughs) No doubt. No doubt. No doubt. (laughs) (laughs) And so, I mean, I think when putting together the founding member group, 
these were months of conversations and really understanding different people's perspectives, how they wanted to contribute. And everyone has a very segmented way of how they want to grow AIC. And I think, you know, when we had our first council meeting and the founding members voted that they wanted to take on 15 new members, it was because in terms of we want to find the most passionate parties and people who are passionate about our mission and want to move move us forward. Because if you think about the CFDA or the Association of National Advertisers, you know, the CFDA also launched with 12 founding members. And so, you know, I think what we're trying to do doesn't necessarily require an army, but requires committed group of citizens. <laughs> that's I totally interesting. Yeah, no, I think that's really smart. And, and again, that's what I'm saying. I think when we talk about these councils and, and these solutions, we often aren't necessarily looking at the work that goes into it. And so I think actually what's really interesting right. is part of this great area. I had almost gone into the question being like, wouldn't open source and it's more democratic and actually there are policies. I mean, that 20 page document that you just spoke of, <laughs> that in and of itself is a whole job. And I'm sure that's just a fraction of what you had to do. So that really puts a lens on this because again, we don't know what it takes to make these changes happen. So I find that really, I find that answer really interesting. Though, it's important though, our top priority is adding value to the marketplace. So mm -hmm. even though our membership model is invite only, a lot of what we're doing is trying to build a leadership repository. So right now we have a resource section on our website. So as an example, there's an FTC section already built out that has video trainings, that has an endorsement guides 101, that has our public comment, that has the full FTC endorsement guides. So there's already education and learning and awareness materials for creators to download, to watch the videos. So we're going to keep building that out because of COVID and Black Lives Matters, we're putting together a crisis management strategy for creators on how to, you know, manage on their platforms unforeseen events. Because coming from the brand side, of course, a standard 101 mode of operation, you're going to have a community management crisis strategy to help mitigate any type of unforeseen types of events. But a lot of creators didn't know how to handle these types of things on their channels which is why you had creators do blackface oh, <laughs> and, some, and some of the other things. And so a creator community doesn't have a knowledge hub. And so that's a big part of what we're building out. Our chairwoman, Chriselle Lim, wants to put together a guide of just like how to handle gifting, how to handle requests, brand requests, and just standard practice. If you're coming from a nano to a micro and you're very new to the space, how to operate. So we're putting together business resource kits that will be available and we'll be rolling those out every month. Okay, so I wanted to add and sort of end with the most recent Diet Prada post. Uh, which they posted yesterday. They've posted something today. We'd kind of be remiss to not discuss it. Mm. You know, there is no shortage of critics, I think, when it comes to influence as much to Chrissy's point. It does fuel this kind of insecurity, but also, you know, there has been a credibility issue. I think just the nature of influencers, that sort of cult of personality, a general lens of sort of disingenuous -ness, if that's the word. So just namely some of the things they've taken issue to has been billboard promotion in the launch, but also just some of the influences that you have on your board, challenges around credibility. And just overall, I think they have a general dislike for influencers. So I think that they find something like the AIC to be quite problematic in the sense that 
you know, one of the more salient points they know is um, some of the influences that you have on your board promoting fast fashion in a, an industry that's increasingly advocating for more sustainable practices and the support of sustainable products and brands, the sort of vague language around a more equitable and a better future at scale, that sort of language, which feels very kind of counter to the way that they perceive a lot of influencers actually moving through the space. So I wanted to just ask you a little bit about that and A, get your thoughts to address it directly, um, but also ask how you plan to navigate what seems to be quite an overwhelming credibility problem just amongst influencers generally, that kind of distrust issue right there. I think, you know, the Diet Prada post is a great example of why the AIC is so important because it's evidence for the destigmatization of the influencer industry. And so I think having a clickbait headline is great for a diet product because it reels people in. And when you say the word influencer, it triggers an emotional response. For a lot of people. And I think that, you know, one, their post headline was both reductive and factually inaccurate. And their portrayal of the AIC was very misleading. And the AIC is not just a lobbying group. And we did not purchase a billboard in Times Square. Um, the mission of the AIC is to advance, first and foremost, education. I think. As we talked about earlier in our conversation, this is a startup industry and a lot of people got into this profession by trial and error. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, our mission pillar, the heart of what we're doing is learning and development. And this month we launched AIC in the Classroom, which is an initiative with American universities that offer digital marketing curriculum. And this is an exciting endeavor for us because it allows members to partner alongside department chairs and professors and really take that creator real world experience and apply it with book knowledge and try to propel this space forward. We launched with the chair at fashion marketing at Woodbury College and with an instructor at UCLA. And, you know, a lot of what we're doing is research work and trying to work with the Bureau of Economic Analysis and really trying to partner with hyper auditor or a forester to examine what influencers contribute to the GDP because, you know, you don't really have those type of reports when you are looking at the influencer economy. And so we are really looking and examining the influencer industry from a completely different lens then, you know, some of the alliances, what their mission and agendas are. I feel like we've crafted something unique that is truly related to the business dynamics of what a trade association or a business league is set out to do. And so it's unfortunate that Diet Prada didn't do their due diligence to really look at what AIC is doing in two weeks, <laughs> um, you know, and what does it mean when we say that our goal is to benefit society? One, we want to improve education. We want Generation Alpha not to have to trial and error through this profession. We also want to work with the Federal Trade Commission to improve consumer transparency because sponsored content is key to what influencers do on a day-to-day -day and brand partnerships. And they did call out several of our members. And I think some of the things that they identified in regards to sustainability were spot on, but the AIC has no partnerships with any fast fashion brands. And so I think when you look at our entire membership and we are individuals coming together 
to drive a mission forward. And each individual has their own track record and their own resume. And so I think before you lump in and judge everyone based on a few, that's unfair. I hope that diet product gives the AIC a chance to do the hard work that we set out to do. And, you know, especially with saying that we took out a billboard. PR Newswire features top stories every day. And when we launched, we were one of the top stories. Okay, so that's a really clear (laughs) distinction. And thank you for clarifying that, because for all intents and purposes, it looks like, I think, the nature of advertising in Times Square, it looks like you took out that real estate. So actually what you're saying is it was a roundup of news that you guys were included in, is basically what you're saying. Correct. But one of the things I do want to ask you is when it comes to these councils, I mean, particularly in this time, you have the Black and Fashion Council helmed by Lindsay Peoples-Wagner and Sandrine Charles, Aurora James's 15% initiative. You know, the people attached and the council or initiative in and of itself is quite binary to the people involved. So I do wonder how you plan to navigate moving forward Given that number of people, just even in reading the comments, and obviously Diet Prada waging, um, I wouldn't go as far as saying waging a campaign, it's just been two posts, but we do know how they feel about influencers and influencer culture. You know, how do you plan on reconciling that credibility problem? Because there are some contradictions in nature of how influencers do operate. Obviously, career influencers work with a plethora of brands that could present some credibility issues, but also just the way they disseminate content, some of the messaging in their day-to-day content, some of the brands that they do take on, some of the things they have said previously, copying other designers to promoting brands that aren't sustainable and brands that have been traditionally problematic. There's a number of things that make this a bit of a credibility challenge, which creates this kind of, I guess, optics issue. How do you see that moving forward, particularly as you start onboarding more influencers? Do you think it's non-binary or do you think that is something you're going to have to really think about as you move forward with the council? Absolutely. I think, you know, uh, case in point, our chairwoman, Purcell Lim, you know, she took to her Instagram stories to publicly acknowledge that she did not do her due diligence when selecting her most recent brand partner. And I applaud her for, you know, owning up to that. And I believe that this was a great experience for her. And I know that she recognizes that her community holds her to a high expectation. Influencers are given an incredible platform and they have an opportunity no different than anyone who has significant uh, public exposure. And I think that people want influencers to, to hold themselves accountable and to be role models. And I do think that you have people who've made mistakes and who've learned from those mistakes. And, you know, I think that this was a great lesson and it serves as a a great lesson for the creator community on the importance of thoroughly researching potential partners. And I took this moment as a great opportunity for us to develop a publicly available toolkit for creators on how to take a multifaceted approach to knowing your partners. Because, you know, one of the things that we believe to be true and present is that, you know, creators in terms of business development and opportunities unlike fashion or advertising, don't necessarily have the same resources. And so we want to enable this community to have that source. And so I think that it's a great learning. And if you look at anyone who has made a mistake in the public eye, I think everyone deserves an opportunity to correct that and to live up to their word. If you say you're going to rectify it, give people the chance to prove that they will do it. And, and I think that's what we, we have to do. 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to see how this will move forward. I think you present a credible argument about the business merits, the policy merits, the tactical merits that actually might work to legitimize the influencer culture of this entire economy. So I guess a lot remains to be seen. Absolutely. And we have ambitious goals. And I know when I commit to something, I deliver on it. And I believe that our mission is in motion already. And in two weeks, I'm so proud of the work we've already started to do. And I know our future is incredibly bright. Well, I have to tell you, Kiana, I mean, that's that's to talking about this sort of the, the resources that you're building out. That sounds highly encouraging. And it sounds like you're going from zero to whatever to whatever. Happens <laughs> there's nothing that, nothing exists. that exists <laughs> that, ex- that exists. I, we can go, as Henrietta said, we can go so much deeper on this. But I think we're, we're, we're at a point now that we've been downloaded such amazing information from both you, Chrissy and Kiana. Like this gives me a lot of food for thought. And um, Henrietta, I'm sure, I'm sure you feel that this is something that is, as you said, it's evolving and things are changing all the time. The point that you gave about TikTok not being um, even assessed at this time by certain entities, that for example, is huge. So no doubt this is a, this is a subject that we will be revisiting and never mind, I, you know, I don't think, I think, as I said before, I think the influencer subject almost has a lot of cynicism uh, surrounding it. But like when you discuss it in a substantive way, like we have done in this forum, you see how valuable and how important and how it's really not going anywhere. You know, you speak of the billions of dollars that this industry, this vertical encompasses, and you saw how quickly it restarted after this whole COVID sort of shutdown. Um, To your point, Chrissy, I hear you. And it makes all the more reason why we need to get a better understanding, not just for ourselves, but for the community out there, get a better understanding and clarity in this space. For sure. Absolutely. And I will definitely, no, of course, you're welcome. And we'll definitely, we'd love to circle back with you as this evolves, because I think that to the points we've all been making about the industry landscape and particularly influencers being overlooked, I think this is such a strong proposition to legitimize an entire economy. And it's no small job, but you sound like the women to do it. And um, (laughs) thank you so much for your time and such a substantive and interesting and dynamic conversation. I know I'm going to go away and and rethink a bunch of things and I'm sure our listeners are too. So I really appreciate you taking the time to speak to us about AIC. This was fun. This was really informative, guys. This was really informative for me. Thank you so much. Thank you. Excellent. Okay, guys. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.